I did rent premises in Johannesburg at 40,000 rand a month and signed a five-year lease when we had no business in Johannesburg. And I branded that building and I kitted it out with furniture. And fortunately, my partners, MNC Saatchi PLC, completely bought into that strategy. But we knew that without the agency in Johannesburg, there was no way we could grow in Johannesburg. So I would fly up to Joburg with a number of my staff from Cape Town, unlock the front door, pop people behind seats and pitch for business. No matter how large your business is or how much experience you have leading, the threat of business death is always looming. When Mike Abel decided to pitch for the advertising business of a flailing retailer called Edgar's, he believed his agency could turn the retailer back into a profitable entity. Unfortunately, a change in leadership at the client led to underhanded tactics which threatened the survival of his business. Mike Abel is a business leader with strong opinions, deep experience, and the talent to back up his words. In this episode of It's Not Over, Mike and I discuss pitching for business when you know you're going to lose it, motivating a team that may lose their jobs, and the morals and ethics of doing business with the right partners and the right clients. My name is Nick Harold Amberson. I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Hey, welcome back to It's Not Over. You know me, but you do not know my new guest on the show, Mike Abel. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And thanks for inviting me, Nick. Looking forward to oh, chat. Such a pleasure. Me too. We have never actually physically crossed paths, but both of us are aware of each other's content and opinions and views. And so this is going to be an interesting conversation. Why don't you kick off by telling my listeners who you are, what you do, and what businesses we're going to be talking about? Perfect. So I've been in the marketing and communications industry, ad industry for the last 35 years. I started my first ad agency in the late 80s. I come from Port Elizabeth, now Quabeja, uh, and I had a ad agency advertising on the black win back window of black taxis during apartheid, which was quite unusual for a young white boy to be operating out of Sweden, Quasakele, New Brighton. Motherwell, and I was in partnership with Untredo Black Taxi Association. They were my business uh -huh. partners. And that was my first ad agency. And then in those days, you either went to jail or you went to the army. And I was a wuss, so I went to the army. And when I came out of the army, other people had taken the place of, of my kind of ad agency, which was unique at the time. And then I joined an ad agency called The White House and spent then many years at Ogilvy, South Africa, co-leading that group. And then I ran the MNC Saatchi Group Australia and returned to South Africa in December 2009. And six weeks later, opened MNC Saatchi Able. We're an ad agency. We handle all forms of advertising. And then I started the MNC Saatchi Group of Companies. So today, we have MNC Saatchi, Abel, Johannesburg, and Cape Town, which are both large ad agencies. We handle brands there like, well, everyone wants to know we're the Nando's agency, Standard <laughs> Bank, Takealot.com, Lexus, and another number of other amazing brands. And then we've got a PR company called Ray, and they recently won Best PR Agency in the World, which is amazing. They're only three years old or turning three. Wow. We've got a wonderful and highly awarded events, activation, sponsorship, sports marketing, passion marketing company called Levergy. We've got a fantastic media company in our group called Connect. We've got a marketing consultancy called Black and White. And so that's pretty much the group. So we're a diversified marketing, communications, media company operating across the continent. We handle brands from Heineken Global across the African continent. Yeah, so that's pretty much us. Amazing. It's kind of why I like my podcast theme and topic so much is because listening to you rattle off the incredible achievements that you've had in the agency space can be overwhelming for people who are just getting started because it just sounds like everything is successful. So I want to dive into which business I'm assuming we're talking about MNC Saatchi Abel started in 2009, 13 years old today, and having known a lot of agency executives, founders, entrepreneurs, I know how brutal the agency world is. So I think the first thing for me is it's incredible that you've had this continued improving success throughout the last 13 years because it's brutal. Like the agency world is cutthroat and vicious and hard, not necessarily more than any others, but still hard. So tell us where we are positioned in your business when we start moving towards this near-death experience we're going to be talking about. And I think you said we have two. So let's start at the beginning. 
Yeah, so I think that when we started on the 1st of February 2010, it was a downturned economy. It still is. We've never had tailwinds throughout the existence of the agency. But as Henry Ford said, the plane takes off into the wind. So we've always used headwinds for liftoff. Dreadful man that Henry Ford was. I must, I must add that because I'm not a fan in any way. But he, <laughs> he, did, he did say that good thing. He had some uh, amazing aphorisms that have become cliches that just fit business so well. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And so the agency turns 13 in, in, in February. And so never having had an easy time, we have always had to dig deep in terms of building our business. One of the things that I forgot to mention, Nick, is I'm also obviously the regional head for the MNC Saatchi Group for the African continent. And then I'm very involved in heading product globally for the group. So this near-death experience comes, I guess, with quite a lot of working across many different markets, many different geographies. So these are the two particular stories that are <laughs> clangers, if you like, that I hope that your listeners enjoy. So the first story that I want to talk about is a major retailer in South Africa that we won when we were very new and very young in Johannesburg. There were six people working in Joburg and we were invited to pitch on Edgar's. And we knew if we won Edgar's, that would be a total game changer for our company. And we were up against the four largest ad agencies in South Africa uh, in this pitch. And there were six of us in Johannesburg. And we won this piece of business against all odds. And that really changed our lives within the Johannesburg area in terms of size and scale and our ability to bring in talent. And we had a fantastic relationship with Edgar's and we were doing some incredible things together. Obviously, the business was already under significant pressure, which is why we were brought in, you know, to help with the repositioning and to help grow that business. What year was this roughly, Mike? This is probably around about 2016, 2017, I reckon. Yeah. It's past their heyday. They've got stores that are kind of looking a bit shabby. They're not keeping up with the Zara trends because Zara's just hit the South African market at this time. They're a little bit in trouble from what I understand, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, our job was to basically help get them off their knees at the time. And I mean, a big part of that is obviously, you know, as you said, merchandise. You've got to have the yeah. goods. You've got to be competitive when it, when you come to the, the hangar. You can build the best brand in the world, but if the stuff on the hangar isn't hot and desirable, what do you have ultimately? You can yeah. get people in store. That's our job is to get people in store. Once they're in store, it comes down to the merch, as they say. Mm. So, But we loved working with them and we we're on a great journey and we we're looking at their house brand strategy and a number of really powerful things. And then a new CEO arrived from Australia, a man called Bernie Brooks. Mm -hmm. And we tried to meet with him and to understand his business strategy. And he kept us at, at arm's length, but we had a fantastic relationship with the CEO of Edgar's, which is part of Edcon, a wonderful lady called Birgit Gebauer, who was the CEO and had a very clear strategy about where she wanted to take the business. And then my first meeting with Bernie Brooks was with one of my business partners and co-founders of the company, a guy called Jacques Berger. And Jacques looked after the Edgar's relationship and, and very well, I might add. And Bernie informed us with a company already in deep trouble and in deep debt at the time. So it wasn't without considerable risk that we took on the journey of helping them. He told us that he wanted to put the account out to pitch. But if we came back and we gave him our best possible lowest price ever, he would consider not putting the business out to pitch because they actually rated us highly and they were very happy with us. And the interesting thing is to be closer to Edgar's, I'd actually decided, we had decided as a group to move our company from Santon and we had just built beautiful bespoke offices in Rosebank to be closer to Edgardale. So we had this building full of people specifically to be close to our client. And now this new CEO is telling us that he might be putting the account out to pitch if we can't sharpen our pencil a lot, or as he said, boil, boil the ocean. So we went away and Jacques and I were in the car and we thought, is this real? It didn't feel authentic to us that this was a genuine guy or a genuine mm. conversation. Anyway, we thought we've got 60, 70 people dedicated to Edgar's in the Johannesburg agency. And our job right now is to protect jobs against all yeah. parts. And how long had you been working on this account before this new CEO had come in and was like, screw it, stop everything, let's repitch? 
About five years. Oh, wow. Jeez. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And we've been appointed by a to- totally different CEO yeah. at the time and, and team. And so we went away and we came back with a very eroded margin, a great price, and really just to retain the business and to look after our people, which was our mm. primary objective. And we gave him the number and he said, well, you certainly boiled the ocean, and, but I'm still... I've got this number now and I'm still going out to pitch. Oh, that is so great. I mean, wow. Yeah. And my immediate question, just before you even carry on, is how did you feel, and I'm talking about emotions here, when that bomb dropped? Yeah, you feel, I mean, it's obviously punched to the gut and you feel totally betrayed. And I'd never lost an account in my career before. So, yeah. So I am very proud to say that I have lost two advertising accounts in my entire career. And I'll talk, and that's, those are two stories I'm going to tell you today. I pride myself and my team and my partners of building very deep, very long-term, very enduring, mutually beneficial relationships with our clients. So this Mm. was to me uncharted territory. I wasn't used to this kind of level of fork tongue, double speak betrayal, um, I guess. And Bergen, the CEO, said, don't worry, I completely back the agency. You are, to quote her, indispensable business partners to me and my business. Wow. And I mean, then he, at, yeah, go ahead. And then Bergen no longer had a job at Edcon. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, the very next day, she was gone. So we didn't even have the CEO to protect us, to help us, to it, talk on our behalf. That is wild. I mean, did, is there... <sighs> I'm going to ask this because there is a part of me that respects the Machiavellian approach to business, but is there any part of you that left there thinking, how the fuck didn't I see this? How did I not expect that he was going to do this? Because if you play out the game theory of what he was trying to do, it's genius. A company that is about to die because they are flailing and not earning money takes their biggest cost, which is acquiring new customers through an ad agency, brings down the cost base, and then goes out to tender to see who can bring a lower cost base in and undercut you. It's kind of genius. It's it's Machiavellian and horrible, but it's kind of genius. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, if it was a successful company under pressure, then it's one thing. But I did think to myself, if I were an ad agency at that point and was invited to pitch on Edgar's, would I have pitched for Edgar's at that stage? Yeah. Because it was, the debt was well published in the in the newspapers. It was in a very different position from when we were brought on because they were burning through cash at a rate of knots. And as far and as I, liquidations go, you're coming in last as the ad agency. You're going to never get paid. If they liquidate, you will literally never get paid as happened to the ad agency that won the account after us. But exactly right, exactly right. So, or allegedly, I haven't (laughs) heard that from the horse's (laughs) mouth, but that's what I'm led led to believe. Anyway, so what happened was you, aside from the betrayal, you get into a deeply pragmatic stage to say, okay, well, what what is the story? And he has said he is putting the account out to pitch and he is inviting us to pitch. Now, at that stage, when we got into the car to drive yeah. back to the agency, I mean, Jacques Berger and I sat pretty stunned in the car that it had been, as you said correctly, so profoundly Machiavellian and just zero respect for relationship, the human element, anything like that. And so we knew that we were going to get fired. We knew that we had to pitch for the business, which is a terrible position to be in, Nick, because for a pitch, you throw everything at the pitch. And we just knew that it wasn't going to work out well. We also knew that he didn't have a positive relationship with our agency from his days in Australia. Our global chairman at the time and him had not seen eye to eye, and we had been well briefed on that and the nature of the person. I was going to ask um, you if your time in Australia actually benefited you at all with this incoming Australian CEO, and obviously not now. Well, not at all. So when I was in Australia, I didn't. I knew of him when I was in mm. that market, and he did run a very large um, 
ailing. He, he wasn't necessarily only attached to successes, I might add, in Australia. <laughs> so I was very familiar with the companies that he had run before and the fact that we didn't have an ideal relationship. Not me, I'd never met him before, mm. but, but the group per se. And so Jacques and I sat in the car and we thought, there's no way we're going to win this account. But for the sake of our people, for all of these people, we have to pitch for it. Because then we can legitimately look people in the eye and say, tried. we gave it our all. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We tried. But, and then we did. We went and we pitched for it. And I think we put forward an outstanding pitch and we threw mm -hmm. everything at it. And unsurprisingly, we never won the account. The interesting thing at the time was, and, and it was about 65% of the revenue in our Johannesburg agency. Wow. I was... So it was dramatic. It was a huge, huge piece of business for us at the time. And we were also invited, when we were invited to pitch for Edgar's, we were also invited to pitch for at the same time. And we had already gone through a number of phases. And then we were told we were down to the final two on JET. And then when this happened on Edgar's, we basically had already done the entire campaign to pitch on JET. And we pulled out. We said, we're not going to pitch. We're not comfortable. Mm -hmm. We don't believe this is being done in a professional way. We don't think these are people that we can work with in terms of whole, the whole style of the, the actual pitch itself. And so with our backs to the wall and facing deep, deep uncertainty and our brand new building and all of these wonderful people, we pulled out of the, the jet pitch because we just knew it was a game that we could not win. We were unlikely to win and we weren't going to kind of lose our dignity, I guess, anymore. Because that's kind of how you feel. You feel at that yeah. stage like you're actually just whoring yourself. Yeah. So I, I do want to stop you here and ask a bunch of soft touch questions. So 65% of your revenue is huge. You and your partner are in the car after the first bomb is dropped. And you kind of know this in the back of your head. What do you do? And I mean literally driving in that car when you get back to the office. Do you, and, and I ask this for context for your answer, I've been in this position where a co-founder sat with me and was like, I'm selling the business, you didn't know about this, tough shit for you, join me or don't, I don't care, I'm out. The first thing I did, it was just a blur. I got up from the table, walked around the streets for an hour, didn't know what I was doing. So what did you and Jacques physically do when you got back to the office? Yeah, well, I think that age and experience plays a big role. I had already, you know, run major companies for a long time. So I had, I guess, a lot of experience, not in losing any business, but in dealing with pressure, significant mm. pressure. And, and so had Jacques. And so we were relatively calm about it and pragmatic. We both kind of kicked into the gear of, so how do we protect as many people's jobs as possible? And how do we protect the company as far as is possible? And how do we protect our reputation? Because we haven't done anything wrong. You've gone from last week being an indispensable business partner to the CEO of Edgar's itself, to now being kind of frog marched out the building, <laughs> metaphorically yeah. useless, yeah. useless. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's always important in life and in business to know your own truth or to know the truth. And the truth is we hadn't erred. There was nothing more we could have done. There wasn't anything where I could have looked and said, but if we had done this or if we had done that, perhaps. We have mm. just given the guy a fee that basically was a survival fee. There was no margin in it at all. And then mm. if that's not good enough, and if you've added all of the value and somebody still doesn't want you, well, you can't take that on, Nick. It can't yeah. become your thing. And yeah. in life, I think we always need to determine what do we take on or what do we learn from? And sometimes it's both, but yeah. I wasn't prepared to take on anything in this other than it being pure treachery. I, I love that approach, Mike, and I'm, I'm a big advocate of Stoicism and the readings of the ancient Stoics. And there's a concept that I try and push to as many of the people that I invest in and coach, the dichotomy of control, that you have the choice to allocate your energy and attention to two things. One is the things you can control, and the other is the things you can't control. And the sane people, the successful people in the world, only allocate their attention to the things that they can control. And like you're saying, you had no control over anything more than the great work you've done. Everything else was on them. It's interesting you say that because I also invoke the serenity prayer 
at those moments if it gave me the wisdom to know. And I, and I knew this was something that we couldn't control. So yeah. you go into survival mode. Mm. And, uh, and so that was really what we started to discuss in a very grounded, very pragmatic way. And mm. when we got back to the agency and what we had done throughout is we had taken our people on the journey with us. So they weren't Indeed. blindsided by any of this. From the very moment that we met with Bernie the first time and he told us he was likely to put out a pitch, but we needed to first boil the ocean, we then did say to them, it is unlikely we're going to retain this business. We would give okay. it a three, a three out of 10 likelihood because you don't start a process like this without something else in mind. Yeah. And we knew enough about him to, to, to understand the nature of the person. And generally, are you in your management style an advocate for transparency as much as possible? So there was no part of you and Jacques that went, let's just go to this pitch and not tell them we might not win. No. So I don't do that. I don't think that's how you build trust. I don't think that's how you retain trust. So even if it works against us, and it often does and has mm. throughout my life pretty much, I would rather have an open, authentic and real conversation with someone than string anyone along. And if there is a pain point or if there is danger or if there's something, I'd rather we discuss it openly. And the other thing that I wanted people to know is if they did get job offers while this was at play, that they actually had the opportunity to take those jobs. Oh, so yeah. that's very important that people actually know exactly where we stand. And so mm. that nobody, nobody, and nobody was blindsided by the loss of Edgar's. By the time it came to that moment, it was pretty clear that that was the trajectory we were on. For me, what was unbelievable was the passion and energy and commitment that the team retained in dealing with the client day-to-day, because -day, the day-to-day -day client was actually a very nice person. Belinda Godfrey and her team, they were fantastic. Because you've got to were... separate church and state, right? 100%. The, the, the church is being a dick and the state still wants to run. You've got to figure out which one, which one is your master and which one you're a slave to. And I was going to ask you, how do you possibly motivate a team that is running a client that they know doesn't want them, as well as pitching for a client that they know doesn't want them and knowing that it's a 30% chance they're going to get it. How do you yeah. motivate them? I think it comes down to values. I think it comes down to culture. I think it comes down to prioritization and, and realism. And so I think all of those were interplayed. And I think that what we also have is this never give up mentality in our company. We, we die hearts. We, we give it our all. We'll push. We always believe in the best in people and in the best mm. possible outcome. On our wall in our creative department and has been on our wall since we, the agency started globally is nothing is impossible. And we do believe that nothing is impossible. And so mm. even though it was unlikely, <laughs> we believed it was still possible. And mm. so I guess it's that hope and that belief and that divine intervention or whatever it might be that might yeah. stay you from, stay your execution. But yeah. Uh, I love that. And I suppose the the interesting observation for me on that is you should never only go for things you think are possible. Then you're not punching high enough. Like you should be going for things that are slightly out of your reach. Otherwise, you're just going to be building a mediocre business that you know you're capable of. And so what you were going for is that off chance, that 30%, let's go for it. But I yeah. have two questions before we I, I move on to the next near-death experience. Two final questions on EdCon, unless you want to add other stuff. In the beginning, when you first pitched it for their business, why did you even go for this ailing business? Like, what was the logic and the thinking behind, we're a big established good agency, let's go for this dying business and try and save them? Because I fundamentally believed we love retail, we understand retail, we're deeply committed to retail, and retail clients enjoy working with us. So we've been partners with the takealot.com group since inception, since Kim Reed acquired Take Two. Take Two, wow, yeah, yeah. that's wild. So we, so, so we rebranded at takealot.com with Kim. We've been involved in every aspect of their business, wow. including superbless.com, Mr. Delivery. Mm. So we love retail and we love growing businesses. And so my most simple answer to the question around Edgar's is we believed in our heart of hearts that we could help them that mm. we could grow that business, that we could help reposition them, that we could help mm. grow their house brand offering. We knew exactly how to do that. And we were on a great journey with them. And so I think that for me, that was the hardest thing is that you absolutely know that you can help a business if that mm. business will allow you to help them. Mm. But unfortunately, in this instance, and, and I think that it didn't help. Egan uh, was the former CEO. And unfortunately, he left. 
you know, so also very disruptive when a CEO that appoints you and has a very particular ambition for the company is no longer there to fulfill on that ambition either. But that's why we took it on, Nick, because we fundamentally believed that we could reverse their fortunes. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of answer I was hoping for. And there's something you said in there that I think is such an interesting observation for me that's partnered with something you said earlier that you pride yourself in not losing clients. You build long-term relationships. And the thing that I love that you just said is that you were growing businesses. Good, And for me, it's such a watershed moment here around ad agencies. If you're listening to this and you're pitching to an agency or they're pitching to you, good ad agencies grow businesses. They don't just do marketing. It's not just about doing the cool, shiny new thing and a nice, pretty brand. They help grow your business. And with that goal in mind, of course you take on Edcon because it's a business that has been a stalwart in South Africa that is potentially dying. And if you can grow their business, why wouldn't you? So I love that from an agency perspective, it's not just about cool, shiny new things. It's about helping a business grow. No question. I mean, if I am asked by a potential client, why should we give MNC, Saatchi, Able or any of the agencies our business? I say because you're going to hold us accountable for three things, for growing your top line, for growing your market share and for growing your brand equity. If all we're doing is growing their brand equity and that doesn't translate into greater market share and greater top line growth, then their marketing funds are not being deployed effectively. Exactly. Yeah, love it. Love it. Okay, so final question on Edgar's is, I think I know the answer, but in hindsight, having said no to Jet, do you wish that you'd said no to the Edgar's pitch? Yes and no is the answer to that question. So it would have been the braver decision to make but it would have also been the harder decision to make because I would have had to look at those 60 odd people and say to them, we have come to a decision and a conclusion that we're not going to win this business. And unfortunately, a whole lot of you are going to be retrenched. As it happens, we won other business the week afterwards. And so we retrenched, I think, of the 65 people, five. Wow. We retained that. We retained the other sixty in the business because of. But uh, that was having, that was a technical gamble. That was a that gamble, was a technic- that, that it, and it was an educated gamble, right? Because you've done this before. But it was yes. a gamble to put your people completely. first and not the business. I mean, that's that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, and then, and that was the thing, and and, and that's exactly the same way as uh, we handled COVID as an example, mm. which is not the second example, but we in MNC Saatchi Able retained 100% of their people on 100% of their salary throughout that crisis because we put our people first. We said, until while we're still operating in the black, while we're still trading well, we are, we're not well. I mean, our profits like everyone else's were decimated. But while we can still afford to pay people, we're not Mm. losing a single person. And that's your values. And if you don't have your values, you've got nothing. It's really incredible. So as we seg into the next near-death experience, I want to ask you a question harking back to the very first thing you said to me. Was that the Henry Ford quote that planes fly into the wind? You've built businesses basically only in downturns and tough economic climates. That's being in South Africa, basically the default. Do you think that building in softer or easier market conditions makes a business less resilient? Or do you think that resilience is kind of innate in whoever's building the business? Yes. Well, there's a wonderful quote from something called the Kabbalah, which is a mystical part of Judaism from who knows where, the Dead Sea Scroll days. But there's a wonderful quote in it, which is a truism. And I think it obviously spans all faiths, but it is a truism, which says, challenge is your only opportunity for growth. And yeah, and I have found that to be true. You look at people who are successful in life. There's so much written about people who kids who grow up on easy street versus kids who grow up tough with adversity. And traditionally, the kids who grow up with adversity end up being much more resilient adults and much Mm. more entrepreneurial and much more capable. So I don't think easy street is a good thing for any business. We are very match fit because we've never had good times. We've never had it easy. And I think that's why South Africans are so resilient. And that's why I think South Africans do so well here and around the world is we are always in a position of fighting to survive to make it, to grow, to dig deep, to be entrepreneurial, to think of innovation. Mm. We've never had those tailwinds that just simply carry us. Agreed fully. There's no but to that. There is an and. And do you think that this psychosis that we have as South Africans 
in any way negatively affects our mental health because it isn't always about a fight. It isn't always about survival. And we we do, we have a tendency to feel like there is always a fight, even when there isn't one, we make one up. So do you think that maybe, and I can speak from experience here, like 22 years as an entrepreneur, building from zero to one is tiring. Burnout is always at the top of my mind. And I'm always trying to squash that anxiety just a little bit. And in context of South Africa, you're doing something amazing and then you have six hours of no, like, how do you, how do you manage that always on fights with the mental health of just trying to be stable and regular? And I mean, you personally, how do you manage that? I definitely think that it does have its negative aspects as well. There's no question. You often have to say, am I suffering from Stockholm syndrome here? Is this right? Or in your business or your country, right? Both of those apply. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right, Nick. And, and so is it right to feel constantly under scrapping, bootstrapping, looking how you can create magic, how you can like Rumpelstiltskin, how do you spin straw into gold? And I think that's, that's what we do so often and every day. And I think it does wear, wear you down. And it's very interesting when I was running the MNC Saatchi group in Australia, it was quite a thing for me that you were in a country that didn't have any of the issues that you were so used to encountering. Mm. And a big part of you misses that. It misses having to dig deep and, and look and at grind. different ways. And mm. Exactly, exactly right. So I, I, if you had to say to me, would I like or prefer less pressure? Would you like to have a political stability? Would you like unemployment to be far, far lower than it is? Would you like reliable power supply? Yes, yes, yes. All of those things, bring it on, please. But unfortunately, you've got to say, how, how realistic is that mm. right now in the short term? And so I orientate around problem solving. So I never wallow in self-misery. I never give myself permission. I'm very disciplined about never being poor me, defeatist, what we're going to do. I always, I kind of look at my life as a ladder. And as I climb that ladder, the rungs beneath me fall away. So I have only three choices. One is to carry on climbing up. The other is to stay exactly where I am. And then the next one is to fall into an abyss. And that's not an option. So I won't even engage in that. There's so much there that resonates with me. There's two things that I want to bring up. The one I'm, I'm sure that you've come across and my listeners will know this intimately if they've listened to every podcast, but speaking about the idea of resilience and your quotes that challenges your only opportunity for growth, there is actually something in psychology that has been proven to be true called post-traumatic growth. And PTG states that if you have experienced a trauma, almost 85% of people in this research study showed that they were better after the trauma. They were a better version of themselves. They were happier after it. And this is from traumas like car accidents, abuse of any kind, whether it's you going through retrenchments, your business after Edgar's was better. And the people that stayed with you were better. And there are actual psychological reasons that this is the case. So everything that you've said about the quote is true in a real sense. So post-traumatic growth is the first thing. And then the second thing is I have a list of nickisms, like your ladder of uh, things. And one of my nickisms is sometimes you have to burn it all down. And it's, it harks back to your ladder. Like you've gone through the run, you've got to let it go. Burn it down. That ship is gone. You can only go forward. Like that's the way. Can't harp on things. You can't allocate energy and attention to runs that you've moved past. So all, all resonates with me. So now let's move on to Brilliant, the second near-death experience. Great. Thank you. Tell me about where the business is and where we're moving towards for the second near-death experience. So it's inextricably linked funnily enough to the closure of the edcon chapter which okay. was we were invited to pitch on sun international so oh, come on exactly serious from the frying pan <laughs> that is crazy exactly. and you guys were like screw it yeah we, we're going in we're going in we're going in That's... yeah okay so so i think it's, it talks to our other stupidity or our resilience or the good ye old combo deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, definitely but, the two for one. But what I love about your post-traumatic, what did you call it? Growth. Post-traumatic growth, PTG. Hmm. PTG, I love that, is what those kinds of experiences do treat you and why people do come back better is gratitude. Yeah. Because you become far more plugged in and aware and far less about 
this is just the way it's going to be. And so mm. the, the colors are brighter and the, the sky yeah. is blue, bluer and the smells and the tastes are all better following something like that. And I have a lot of experience in that, unfortunately. But, and fortunately, I guess. So Sun International approached us. Now, I worked extensively on Sun International for many years when I led Ogilvy Cape Group of Companies and when I co-led Ogilvy South Africa as the COO. And one of the campaigns that I'm most proud of is uh, I conceptualized the Charlize Theron campaign uh, for yeah. Sun International. I don't know if you remember yeah. that. You know? I do, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was under this beautiful golden thread that the agency had created. A man called Howie Schmidt had created this thing called A Million Thrills, One Destination. And mm. and working with Dave Kutstrotter, who was the then CEO of Sun International, um, I came up with this idea of who represented. She had recently won an Oscar mm -hmm. and she was the golden girl of South Africa at the time. And who would be a great person to, to have as an icon and an emblem of, of the brand promise of Sun International from resorts point of view and from a gaming point of view. Mm. And then I went to go and run the MNC Saatchi group. And then here I am as MNC Saatchi Able being invited to pitch on this account. I didn't mention to them that I'd in any way worked on Sun International before. We pitched for the business. We won the business. And um, I'm sitting in a briefing session with the new client, who's also the COO of the, of the group. He subsequently passed. And he's briefing the agency on what Sun International is. And he says, we don't want any of that rubbish like that Charlie's Theron work. <laughs> A um, classic. And you're like, excuse me, I'm just, I'm going to have to go then. Thank you. That's, <laughs> that's beautiful. And, uh, and, you, and you're sitting there and you think like, my God, what do I say? <laughs> no, I said nothing. Trust me, I didn't confess to any yeah. of those. So I, I still remain immensely proud of that campaign. Yeah. And, I how, and I know how hard it worked for the business. It worked unbelievably yeah. well for the business. He said, because if you want to understand the Sun International brand, you need to understand it's about two things. It's about safe parking bays and it's about clean toilets. No, come on. Yeah, yeah. That's well, you, and you just immediately regretted pitching for that business and you're like, we're screwed. We're screwed. We're screwed. Yeah. Because yeah. there is absolutely no alignment of ambition around wow. the brand. And you think, no, no, Sun International is about thrills and spills. It's about family. It's about the Valley of the Waves. It's about the Palace of the Lost City. It's about adventure yeah. and Indiana Jones. And aspirational just, to some exactly. level. It's aspirational, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so when you hear something like that, you think, oh, Lord, You're like, what are we going to do now? And you just know in a yeah. statement like that, you are on a harding to nothing. And yeah. so then none of the work we wanted to do was bought. Just none of it. And all we were doing every single month was doing win a car, win a car, win a car. And of course, it's you could win a car. Stuff. But that's not how you build the brand. Mm -hmm. And the promotional mindset is one thing, but you don't build, even if you're doing emotional promotional, you don't yeah. build a brand on a promotional mindset. Yeah. You build a brand on desirability. On. And also in terms of conversion, converting a customer to a long-term customer, winning a car gets them through the door but doesn't keep them in the hotels. Like it's it's not a long-term strategy to give a car away. It's short-term gain to bump up a price and then move on. Like it's wild. Yes, exactly right. And so you actually then start also to train your potential customers to look at the brand differently, to always look for an on-promo kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that erodes margin. That erodes yeah. desirability. So then we carried on doing that work for a short amount of time. And then a new guy came in as the head of marketing. He was the chief marketing officer and he had never been in marketing before. He had never held down a marketing job. And you think like, how do you oh. work with somebody who's never done this before? <laughs> it's kind of like the, yeah. the heart surgeon walking into <laughs> surgery and he's an accountant. Marketing is highly specialized. You can understand all the pulleys and levers for creating mm. growth, for desirability, for getting small matter of getting somebody to choose your brand versus somebody else's. And so he came in and he said to me, going to uh, put this business out to pitch. And this Come is on. exactly right. 
uh, about a year, 18 months after the other thing, because uh, you guys are trying to do work that's brand building, and I'm not interested in that kind of nonsense. Uh, and he did call it nonsense. And you guys are not excited by promos. And so we never pitched for that one again. Yes, because we're not shop rights. That's why we're not pitching for promos. That's right. Exactly okay. right. Yeah. Um, although, although, point... although I do have a lot of respect for ShopRite. Let me say oh, that. Yeah, because they, they know themselves. They stay in their lane and they do what they do incredibly well. Like yes. they're trying to be what they are. That's yes. it's, gen it's genius, right? Yeah. And, and they, they're that, clever like, marketers. Same as Pip. Yeah, same yeah. as Pip. They know what they are. But at this time, how much of Sun International is your business and how have you scaled your team accordingly? So I would say that the retainer on Sun International at the time was probably 50% of the revenue in the Johannesburg agency. Wow. Okay. So it's big. 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 Very big. Um, and people? People assigned to the work? Yeah. I would say, well, as I mentioned, we managed to retain probably about 60 of that 65 mm that we moved across to work on Sun International and our other clients because we had, another, we, we had a number and we still have every single one of the other clients oh. in the Joburg agency that we had at the time. But Poor you know, people are just traumatized on top of traumatized, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But fortunately, we won other business. And so when we lost Sun International again, I would mm. say we retained about 80% of the people in the agency. It was, very, it was very damaging. We lost quite a few senior people that we couldn't afford, mm. but we, 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 we were not going to repeat the same mistake. We're not going to pitch for the business again. Okay, so you outright just said, thank you for all the fish. We're out. This is not for us. Go find an agency that likes you. Correct. Well, it was, it was the agency that they appointed I'd never heard of before, and I haven't heard of them since. Since. Mm. Yeah. So I don't... Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly I know. Right. I know where you're going with that. There's no need to, to push on. <laughs> okay. I mean, in incredible. These stories. It's very agency specific, and that's why I love having the diversity of people here on this show. But it isn't actually that agency specific, right? It's about choosing the right partners, sticking to your values, and putting your people first. And that last one I want to touch on because I think it's an important point, and it's clearly one of your values as a leader. There is this old saying that we all know and love: the customer is always right. And I fundamentally don't agree with that. I believe that your staff are always right. Your staff are the people you need to put first and then they put their customers first. So how does that fit in with your view of the world, especially being so customer centric as an ad agency? Surely your team have to be happy and, and agencies are notorious for not being that. They're notorious for working their teams to the ground for high staff churn. How do you get around that as a leader? So I think the first thing is I've never known in my career and none of my people where the client ends and the agency begins. So it okay. is 100% a partnership. It's a very, very intimate okay. partnership. You're seeing your client every single day. So unlike any other service industry, if you like, whether it's your lawyer or it's your architect or it's your accountant, you see them once a year or maybe once every 10 years, whatever, we work in partnership with our clients every day and our clients mm. are our friends, they deep relationships, and they're all based on one word and one word only: trust. Yeah. And if you and if you ha don't have trust in business, irrespective of industry, not ad industry, any industry, if you don't have trust, you have nothing. And so you might disagree, and then you respectfully agree to disagree. But if you disrespectfully disagree, then it's very very problematic because it means mm. that although we have a different opinion. I don't respect your opinion and you need to respect my opinion. And that's problematic for this, for sustaining any relationship. So a lot of the clients that we've got great relationships with, we disagree on a lot of things. And because of mutual trust, we get to a better place because as they say, if two people in a room agree on everything, you only need one of them. So d disagreement is good because it's how yeah. you get to a better solution. So that's the first thing. The other thing is obviously, I am fully aware, yes, we have very, very beautiful, high trust, robust relationships with our clients, but we are the service provider and they are the client. And I've never been confused about that. That doesn't mean a subservient relationship in any way. It's understanding it's their money, it's their brand, and you are there to help them deploy their money judiciously, effectively, and grow their brand. No matter how close or how tight that relationship is. And yeah. as, that, as I always say, he who holds the wallet is king. And so if they're paying, then you've got to respect that. 
So yeah. you've got to be so. I have no problem in any remote way. All I want to do and all we want to do as an agency, as I said, is to grow their business. That's our sole mm. orientation. If that gets you into trouble, I don't know what to do about that then, Nick. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. And I think that word trust is a key one, but it is also a complex one. Maybe not for you and your agency right now, because you've got decades of experience and have a brand around trust. And and I mean, to be clear, you're very smart about building trust in your own brand. You write columns that are very pointed and poignant. You pick enemies that are worth picking to go up against in public, which is all very intelligent in building this trust for the right kind of customer that you want to attract. So I, yeah. I I, I see your flywheel of branding as Mike and MNC Sachi just so smart. But if you're a brand new business trying to build trust with a client, can you practically tell me how you would advise them to do so? Yes, I think the first most important thing is authenticity. Oscar Wilde said it best. You might as well be yourself because everyone else is already taken. And so when people come rock up or show up as pretense, it's not sustainable. So mm. the first thing that you need to do is to understand what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses and what can you authentically and realistically bring to the table in terms of growing that. For many years, uh, when I was growing our company, we never had a great PR offering. And so when clients used to come to us for PR, I would recommend other PR companies out there that we would collaborate with because I was never prepared to pretend that we could do something that wasn't going to deliver the desired result of the client. So it's not about kind of greater share of wallet or kind of a land grab. It's about authentically being able to deliver something. So if you had been at MNC Saatchi Able on day one, you would have heard me say, if you were in the room and you might have thought I was completely crazy, and one of my partners, Jason Harrison, accuses me of having a reality distortion field because yep. I like to bend the universe to my wall. <laughs> I mean, don't the greats all do that? Like, that's the idea, right? This is how the world should look. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. What other way? But as I said on day one, in five years time, we are going to win best large advertising agency in South Africa. Not best mm. small, not best medium, best large, according to the financial mail ad focus. And five years later, we won best large agency. And mm. that is because I had a very clear vision with my partners yeah on we were going to build a high trust agency with quality clients and aligned ambition. And if you mm -hmm. don't have aligned ambition, Nick, you also can't succeed in a new relationship with the client. Mm -hmm. so, so obviously there's always going to be the wolf at the door in terms of paying the bond or paying the rent or whatever it might be, the school fees. And there has to be a, real, a, 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 a degree of pragmatism. So if you see the potential for a, an aligned ambition, and you say, we might not be fully aligned right now, hmm. but I know that working together, they will see the value in this journey and what I can bring to the table. It's still worth pursuing that journey. It's still worth approaching it with a positive mindset as opposed to deep skepticism. Now, there's yeah. a terrible thing in human nature, which is people who are fault finders are perceived to be more intelligent than people who just go with stuff. Now, hmm. I'm very comfortable being a dummy. I'm very comfortable being the guy that is enthusiastic and positive and optimistic and not sitting in a meeting trying to look for, aha, caught you there, or did you know this, or whatever. So mm. if you lean into solving in the positive, you get to a very good place. And I think that clients that are looking for people that are enthusiastic about their business, that bring their real, hardworking, authentic self to the table and will give them give their all, those are good people. Yeah. And I, that's what the problem is with a lot of consultancies, is a yeah. lot of consultancies have no intention of solving the problem. They have an yeah. intention, and I'm not talking about anyone in specifically, but some that I've worked on is like, but at what stage are you going to be measured for the output of what you're yeah. billing them to do? Yeah. Yeah. And not just drop the bomb and walk away. And I love the word authenticity because a lot of advice given to young business people or young people trying to break into a career is fake it till you make it. And I, I personally, I love, I love that advice with an exception. You, and the exception is the word you mentioned, authenticity. There are things you should fake. You should maybe fake that you are a big business and you, you, you aren't. Fine, but you can't fake authenticity. If you authentically believe that you are the best person to win this business, go out and do what you have to do to get that business and then perform. 
But if you aren't being authentic, you get the business and you can't perform, then you're a liar. So there is this fine line in that advice of fake it till you make it. Where do you sit on that? Because you have to kind of fake trust in the beginning, right? Or fake your size or fake something to win a client to prove that you can do the work. Well, firstly, completely guilty as charged. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So I did rent premises in Johannesburg at 40,000 rand a month and signed a five-year lease when we had no business in Johannesburg. And I branded that building and I kitted it out with furniture. And fortunately, my partners, MNC Saatchi PLC, completely bought into that strategy. But we knew that without the agency in Johannesburg, there was no way we could grow in Johannesburg. So I would fly up to Joburg with a number of my staff from Cape Town, unlock the front door, pop people behind seats and pitch for business. Yeah, you know? that's a good version of fake it till you make it because behind that, you understand that authentically, you can do the best job for your clients. There's no question. So if yeah. they appointed us, as I said, when we won Edgar's, we were six people in Joburg and the other agencies were all upwards of 250 people in their offices in Johannesburg, mm. every single one of them. Wow. Um, and we never dropped a ball because we hired very quickly. We serviced the business extensively out of Cape Town while we were building the team and we got mm. there. But the client certainly believed that we would be able to do it. Yeah. And if you had to say, did they realize quite how small you were when they appointed you in Joburg? I'd say, no, they didn't. Because what they saw were brilliant people in the room on the day. And yeah, what's the, the relevance of that anyway? That's right. What's correct. the relevance of them thinking you had 600 people? If the work is good and you're delivering, that's enough. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. And so I do believe, I absolutely do believe to an extent in, in, in fake it till you make it. But what you can't do is you can't walk onto Wimbledon Centre Court and not be able to serve those aces. You can't. So unless you can do the job for the client, don't go there. Yeah. You know, so you can fake scale, and but you can't fake capability. That's something that you must never fake. That's bang on. Mike, this has been illuminating. Thank you so much for your time and the stories and the lessons. And in closing, I would like you to tell people where they can find you, follow you, where they can find MNC Saatchi Able, and where they can buy your book, because I know you have a book out. Cool. So let's start with the book. You can buy Willing and Able at any of the major, or takealot.com, our client, Big Punt, any of the major book retailers, exclusives, any of them. Certainly on Kindle, you can get it. And you can buy it as an audio book on Audible, where you won't have to listen to the strains of Mike Abel, but the brilliant David O'Sullivan, who reads <laughs> the book. And then you can find us, obviously, on uh, mcsarchigroup.coza or mcsarchiable. Coza, both of them, because we've got the group of companies and then we've got the, the ad agency brand. You can follow me on Twitter on at Able Mike, uh, and you can find me on pretty much on Facebook, and you can find me on LinkedIn, and you can find me on Insta. I everywhere. As an agency every- guy, you're everywhere. You're experimenting. I'm waiting for the TikTok, the Able TikTok. <laughs> my, my sons have warned me not to do a TikTok. They've told me they will disown me if I do a TikTok. I'm dead keen to do a TikTok. <laughs> so do it and then go viral and then be like, see, see, I know what to do. Yeah. Oh, and, then, wow. and then I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you something exciting, breaking news, yes. Nick. Yes. So this is a publication called Intuition. It's uh, like the street store which has become a global movement for clothing the homeless. This is an MNC Saatchi able initiative for good. And really what intuition is jam-packed, it says, go fetch your future, you'll see, is filled with wisdoms and insights and inspiration for young graduates, for school leavers, tertiary students, to just pick up amazing stories, thoughts, and ideas on what they could be applying to their own lives based on what other people have done. So that's exciting. Where can people find that? So we will have an online magazine launching soon, and there will be a a URL for that that I don't have right now. Do I have it here? No, it's not (laughs) here. But they can go, I'll tell you this, go to Hello Intuition, hello at intuitionmag.coza if you're unsure at the time, but we will be promoting it. So the online magazine will be available free and to every, and then we'll be distributing these for free on campuses around the country as from next week. Incredible. Mike, I'm so glad to say that for you and your entrepreneurial journey and MNC Saatchi Able, it's not over. Thank you so much, Nick, and thank you for having me. I've greatly enjoyed the conversation and getting to know you a bit better. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you.